0: This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. (laughs) Razib Khan's unsupervised learning.
1: You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about Orchid. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now, because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the unsupervised learning podcast. Today I am with my friend, Nicholas Casimides, actually Dr. Nicholas Casimides. Uh, but before we start, um, I do want to say one thing. I say this every now and then, but not that often. Um, can you please rate my show on Spotify and Apple if you're listening it, listening to it on those platforms? I don't know what else is out there. I used to use Stitcher, but they shut Stitcher down. But basically, uh, if you rate, It positively, it's good. If you review it, it's even better. And the reason is, uh, you know, more distribution, and people can listen to, um, you know, you know, great podcasts with uh, individuals like Doctor Casimides here. Um, And so, I just just want to say that I don't say that that often. Um, I know it takes like a couple of minutes out of your day. Uh, Please do it. Um, I don't have an ambition of getting up there with thousands of reviews, but um, uh, I'm in the mid uh like 150s i think right now so uh, on apple and 144 on spotify i'd like to get a little higher i know that there's uh thousands and thousands of people that listen to this so if just you know every other person uh could write a review or uh review this that would be great okay that's boring um i want to talk about interesting things um we are going to be talking about artificial intelligence today uh with someone who is uh Steeped in the field, um, you know, introduced Nick as Dr. Casimides, and I know Nick, uh, here in Austin in the tech scene a bit. So, uh, just so if I seem a little bit fresh with him, um, I'm not being inappropriate. He's just a friend of mine, but, um, he is also a doctor, uh, who has a PhD from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, uh, under Marvin Minsky, who those of you who know something about popular science and artificial intelligence, that name will ring a bell. Um, we can talk about this, but my under, my impression is he's probably the most prominent artificial intelligence researcher in the second half of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, uh, Nick knows. Um, well, he probably has his own biased opinions about that. Uh, he was a postdoc, naval research lab. Um, he was a professor. Um, he was an academic at RPI uh, in cognitive science and computer science. And then he, you know, went into industry, worked at Yahoo on deep natural language. And then Samsung, he was the head of uh, AI research. And now he is the, the founder of a startup called Dry.ai, which I do use in various capacities. And we will talk about that later. You have probably seen Dry links here and there uh, on the um you know on the on the newsletter uh, basically um you know i wanted to talk to nick today because uh, there's a whole aspect of him that is off is not surfaced very much i think um at least in the uh, the social context that i see him and which is his academic uh, aspect as a researcher and you know all the stuff he did and all of his insights and he has certain opinions and conclusions but um you know, people like me that have opinions and conclusions about artificial intelligence we do not really know anything, to be honest. Um, and I'm sure he has certain opinions uh, about genetics, but I don't really know much, you know. So this is, I'm trying to give the analogy here of why it's important to listen to the area experts, um, uh, even though uh, we should be also careful appeals to authority. But Nick knows this stuff. And so um, I'm going to try to uh, pour some of that knowledge out in this podcast um, the first thing I I do want to ask you, um, I have notes that I put in here about this actually, um, what is artificial intelligence? How do you define it? And also what is deep natural language? These are words that, you know, people think they know, but, you know, often these, you know, straightforward words are misleading when they're taken out of a colloquial context. So wh- why don't you just like start from there?
0: Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me, by the way. Um, yeah. Artificial intelligence. It's a hard, hard thing to define. Um, to me, it just means, um, making computers do things that we would characterize as being intelligent in people. Um, that, that's simple, basically. Um, I, you know, a lot of people want to define intelligence when they start talking about AI. Uh, but. You know, really, there's no really good definition of life. It really doesn't matter what your definition of life is to study biology. I mean, most people study biology and they might have some memorized definition of bio- of what life is, but it never really affects the actual details of the science. Like whether a virus is a living thing or not really doesn't really matter when it, for any actual um, scientific inquiry into like how viruses work, how they spread, et cetera, et cetera. So I, so I don't worry too much about what AI means. But, yeah, that's basically I think uh, how I characterize AI is um, – get computers to do things we uh call intelligent.
1: Yeah, so I think um this semantic uh issue is more for people on the outside because um in many cases uh like you said um I <laughs> I mean this is uh, I don't want to sound like a hater uh but um I will sound like a hater. Uh, philosophy of biology like you know or philosophy of science in general, philosophy of physics whatever I No one's really pays attention to it when you're doing the science because you're a practitioner and you're doing it. Um, So this is like you know, you know, Supreme Court saying that they know and something's obscene. They know porn when they see it, you know. Um, So obviously, like nobody on a porn set is. What is pornography? (laughs) It's just like everyone knows what's going on here. So with artificial intelligence, like you know, we could talk about the Turing test and all these other things, but um, you know, the reality is, I'm assuming when you're in the lab or you know, when you're working on the computer and whatnot, it's just like, you're not like having deep philosophical, I mean, you're not, I mean, just most people don't have deep philosophical reflections, but, you know, researchers are trying to get publications out there. They're trying to solve hard problems. And so um, they're probably not going to, uh, actually, I know they aren't uh, going to, you know, mull over insoluble problems, which is what a lot of philosophy is to be candid. But um, so what is, what is deep natural language though? Again, deep, natural, and language. All these terms are straightforward, but together, what do they mean?
0: Right. I think when people first started using that term about 20 years ago, probably, I would say, um, what they, and when I I really started using myself, my own research about 10, 15 years ago, and at the time, um, most systems that most computers that understood natural language understood it at a very shallow level, um, so the field of natural language processing was very good at determining whether um, classifying the part of speech of a sentence of a word or it was very good at classifying whether what the topic of a document was was it about finance was it about sports was it about weather? Um, and so at the, and so our goal at the time in my own research and my lab's research was to figure out how to have much deeper understanding of what is being said, what people are talking about so that you could do a much better job of, um, you know, conversing with them, solving problems and being useful. Um, so that's really what deep natural language means. It has actually nothing to do in that context with deep learning.
1: I see. Yeah. Uh, there's only a finite number of, uh, Words out there. And so things start overlapping and people get confused. So I just want to clarify that, you know, I know, um, so you worked under Marvin Minsky. Uh, I mean, he's a famous dude. Uh, he was one of the, uh, type of people. I mean, I think literally he was, he was on the edge.org website, you know, part of Brockman's, uh, you know, intellectual scientific salon. So you, you got your PhD. Um, you know, you have, as they say, good pedigree um so you have you are a doctorate under a scientific celebrity but also someone who made a lot of original contributions uh, kind of pioneered um modern artificial intelligence from what i remember reading uh, after world war 2 uh, obviously there's other people out there uh, but uh you know minsky is looms large uh, I know that there are arguments and theories about the different types of artificial intelligence and philosophy, and I vaguely remember reading stuff about top-down and bottom-up and all these things. Can you just give us a general sense of, I don't know, uh, the, uh, um, let's say paleo AI? You know, like AI in the sixties, seventies, eighties, before you came onto the scene, uh, before you know all of the things like neural networks and everything like that were invoked.
0: Sure, yeah. Um and Marvin Minsky was involved in a lot of it and was actually on a lot of sides of it, actually quite controversial about it. So there was a there was a boom in neural nets actually um I would say early 60s. I don't know the exact dates, but that that gives you a time frame. Um and uh, Marvin Minsky wrote a book <clears throat> called Perceptrons where he and Seymour Papert uh proved certain limitations of neural networks. Um and that caused the field to abandon neural networks for a while. Um and And what you see now, what you saw after that was this, uh, what's generally called symbolic AI, um, and that means several things. So for example, uh, one way of characterizing, so I'll just give you some broad examples of how people uh, characterize that. So... One of the earliest approaches was uh, based on search. And so the sort of idea there is if you're playing a game of chess, for example, um, and you want to find the best move, what you do is you think, OK, if I, you know, what are my possible moves? Let me imagine I do each of those moves and then let me imagine the moves the my opponent can can make and let me do that you know, for 10 steps forward. Um, and let me therefore search through the, 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 the sequence of possible moves I can make my opponent can make and find the most optimal move. Um, another example would be of search would be if you're trying to plan a path from, you know, like your GPS does, um, to plan a path from, from Boston, say to New York, or you're driving, um, what you would do is you'd start by, um, you'd search all the possible routes. You go, okay, I'm on a certain street right now. I can take three streets from here. Uh, and imagine what would happen if I take each one. And, you, and again, you search through the possibility of doing all through all those possibilities. Um, so that, that approach to natural language to, uh, excuse me, to AI was based on search. It was uh, quite powerful. And um, that is what AI, what a lot of, you know, a lot of people identified AI as being search algorithms where you're just searching through spaces. Um, and so, so right now, for example, when you ever, you use your, your phone or your car to navigate to somewhere, you are using what was once an AI mount, what was once considered an AI algorithm. Um, and so that's one more approach to AI. Another approach to AI was, uh, based on theorem proving. Um, and so the idea of theorem proving is in, in AI is this, um, let's say, for example, you want to, um, uh, solve a problem. Um, and so, um, which you, you could characterize it as a theorem proofing problem. So basically the actions you can take are your axioms um, and the current state of the world are the facts that you take to be true. And the, the, the desired state of the world would be the theorem you're trying to prove. Um, and then so you feed that to a computer that can prove theorems and the proof it generates turns out to be a sequence of actions that will help you um, achieve your goal. Um, it's kind of abstract, but it turns out that you can form, uh, you can, um, characterize a lot of problems as is, you know, theorem proving problems. And that has a lot of, uh, great benefits. Um, you, you know, once you characterize things as, in terms of theorem proving, you can make all kinds of proofs about, um, you know, uh, what a system does, what it can be guaranteed to do, whether it's going to be guaranteed to correct or not being guaranteed to correct. And so that's the opposite of neural nets today, right? We're basically the problem we have with, uh, with LLMs and ChatGPT and so forth is that they make stuff up and we really have no way of knowing why they're making stuff up. Um, and um, whereas these other approaches to AI that I'm t- that were prior to that actually were very explicit about the actual knowledge they had encoded into the system. Um, so there were a couple other, there's there several other kinds of symbolic AI, but I think that gives you a flavor of uh, what AI was once uh, compared to what it is now. Um, and there's yeah. some trade-offs, uh, but um uh, but that I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, it's interesting. you know, I know about the whole search stuff. Um, I think anyone who's on the edge of tech knows the importance of search and search algorithms in modern technology. It's interesting you point out the theorem. Um, you know, solving theorems are a big deal. Obviously, um, you know the origin of real modern mathematics, and they go back to the Greeks. But uh, for various reasons. Um, the American academia um, or, like, you know, educational establishment, um, we have de-emphasized theorems. So, for example, like, you know, inductive learning and in math as opposed to deductive. So when you're saying a theorem, I think a lot of people kind of know what you're talking about, but um, they haven't done very many theorems. Like, I haven't done very many. You know, like, I've taken applied math, but they just kind of stopped emphasizing proofs. Um, over the past generation or so in contrast with search i think a lot of people are just imagining what's going on they feel like they have an intuition and sorting algorithms and all these other things are a big deal in computer science and so if you have friends that are in in tech uh, who, that are devs you've heard about that so it's interesting how you know these two things have different um saliences i think to us in 2024 and that's just because of the practical application i want to go back um can you tell the uh, audience what a neural network is, because again, neural—that sounds like biology, but obviously, it's not biology.
0: Sure. Um. Yeah, neural networks are at best a crude approximation of how neurons actually work. I mean, at the at the, at the very best. But but a neural network. Um, I'm trying to think of the easiest, simplest way to characterize this, um, would be this. So let's say let's say take the simplest example of a neural network. Let's say we're trying to, disc- to to, we're looking at sort of pieces of fruit and we're trying to decide whether they are um, raspberries or, or, um, or, or whether they're oranges say, right. Um, let's say, let's make that bananas or oranges. Um, and so, and so let's say there's two features that matter to, to sort of help you decide that one would be the color of the, um, of the, of the object and the other one would be its shape. Um and so you can imagine um having and you can imagine basically having a, a graph uh if that means anything to people. So basically you have um let's say you have a neuron and a neuron encodes the color and the other neuron encodes the shape and then you feed that into another neuron which encodes the um uh, the category of the object. And so and so basically um, and in, in, and so let's say you're trying to decide whether it's a strawberry or not. Uh, when you have the color red feeding into the strawberry neuron, the so when the color of red neuron, feed, when the color neuron feeds into the um to the uh when the red neuron feeds into the category neuron, uh, you want a high activation of the category neuron of the so it's a strawberry. When the sort of yellow neuron feeds into the um um. Uh, strawberry neuron, you want a low activation because you don't want yellow to make you think of strawberry. So the idea is you can think of all these neurons that encode either concepts or they encode things that you you see in your environment um, or pixels, for example, in your retina. um, And they're all connected to each other this way. And they're sort of charging each other up. um, And the degree to which they charge each other up um, decides what kind of inferences you make about what's happening. Um, and the challenge of training a neural network is to sort of decide how much one neuron will charge another neuron, um, in such a way that it makes the correct predictions.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, what is this? Are you, are you, could you say that you're training the neurons or is that not, not the right word?
0: People say you're training the network and the way you train the network is deciding how much one neuron will activate another.
1: Yeah, and, and I I wanna go back to Neural Networks because I feel like, you know, they burst onto the scene, then they kinda well, I mean, disappeared a bit, uh, and now they're they're back. And and I wanna talk a little bit about that. But first, um, so um, you know, we got some you sent me some notes and you know, there's various things um that I wanna touch on. Um, so what was Eliza? I think I've read about Eliza, but I forgot about Eliza. Like it seems very familiar.
0: Yeah, it's good that you mentioned that. Uh I think it was in the sixties, um, might've been early seventies, but thereabouts, uh, someone created a computer that, um, you know, a computer program and you'd go there and you'd talk to it and it acted as a therapist. And you would say something like, you know, oh, I just had an argument with my husband. Um, you know, he was complaining about X, Y, Z. And it would say, oh, tell me more about that. Um, and it would have these simple little rules that would say things, oh, like, tell me more about that. Or it would say things like, oh, what does that make you think of? Uh, So basically had a few, it was basically something that had a few canned responses um, to what you would say, Uh, but it was intoxicating to people. People would sit there and have conversations, become emotionally involved with the program. So it was really the first, uh, probably the first chatbot ever, certainly the first one that anybody ever noticed. Um, And it was quite, um, it was, it was, it caused a lot of hype in AI at the time. Um, And something that, you know, taking a step, quick step back, people don't realize AI has been through several hype stages. We've had, you know, you might remember the, the Watson hype stage and then when, when in the 90s, when AI would uh, beat humans at chess, there was that phase. There's lots of phases of, of hype. This is the biggest one we have right now. But there was an early one caused in part by Eliza. and um, And so I think the lesson a lot of people drew from it at the time, well, the immediate lesson was, oh, my God, computers are really smart. They understand us. They're very emotional. They're going to take over the world. But pretty quickly, people saw the limitations of that. Um, and so then the lesson was, you know, some, the lesson people should have uh, learned from that was some pretty shallow, people are pretty shallow, actually. Um, they, they will attribute humanity um, and they'll anthropomorphize things that really don't deserve it. I think that's part of the appeal of pets, frankly. Um, and so, um, and so basically, uh, I, I think, and I think, you know, in, in some way, ChatGPT although it's, it's, a thousand, it's a million times more impressive than Eliza and extremely useful in a lot of ways, still uh, people's first encounter of it makes them think that it's it, as intelligent as a person, but when you actually try to get it to do a lot of normal things people can do, it can't do them. Um, so there's just this lesson that there's a difference between sounding smart and being smart. And I think Eliza was the, really the first uh, thing that sort of uh, exploited the fact that people sometimes infer people things that sound smart are smart.
1: You're, uh, you're, you're alluding here, I think to the Turing test in a way, right?
0: Yeah. It, it's a, it's a similar point. Um, it is a similar point. Uh, we're basically if the Turing test, you know, I think turns to different, different, you know, I really haven't read the actual original Turing text, so I don't want to misattribute it to him, but what people tend to think of the Turing test is that if I give you a, a computer and you interact with it and you think it's human, then, then that means it's intelligent. And, um, I think that's wrong in two ways. One is you can be intelligent without being human-like. Um, and two, uh, you can uh, sound human and actually not be that intelligent. And you can even sound intelligent not being that intelligent. I mean, in, in our normal <laughs> Many lives... Many cases. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody knows someone who... Um, who really doesn't isn't very smart, but they're really good at regurgitating smart things other people have said. Um, in fact, that's what most people in engineering think about people not in engineering, um, in the humanities, right? And so basically, um, you know, people like when they're judging people are able to sort of separate sort of actual intelligence with maybe sort of regurgitated intelligence. Um, but but they need to get better at that with computers as well.
1: Yeah, so we've been at this since I mean, so I looked it up, Eliza was 64 to 67 um and you know i i remember these sorts of chatbots even when i was a kid in the 90s and they were really cool at first because it was like you know is this a computer is this a human what's going on here but it's more about us uh these chatbots are telling us it's more about evolutionary psychology human psychology in a way uh because eliza was i mean the source code uh they just recently rediscovered it uh they used to not publish code back then but uh, You know, they had to use, like, you know, abstraction and other things and, you know, all, all of the the basic stuff that you see. But, I mean, it's programming language. It's a programming language that's just, like, taking inputs and outputs. And, like, people think it's human or the people think it's uh intelligent. Like, what? This is crazy. But, you know, what is intelligence? What is – I mean, I, these things are – it's kind of like you know it when you see it, but then, like, people see intelligence – uh, in computers. And, you know, um, the pundit Matt Iglesias likes to say all of these criticisms of why, uh, you know, GPT is not, um, a lot of the criticism of why GPT is clearly not, uh, intelligent <laughs> apply to a lot of humans. <laughs> so it's That's like, right. it's like, it's like people are too stupid to realize, well, I mean, how do I know that you're intelligent or conscious, you know? uh so it's like the whole thing is just kind of like i want to use a swear it's kind of like a mind fuck you know it's like okay wait 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 what's going on here and so i think um artificial intelligence is fascinating because you know obviously we care about it we care about automation but also it comes back to us and it's like wait wait what's going on with us like how would how would um you know, it's a science fiction story. This is a science fiction story where artificial general intelligence emerges and it concludes humans are not intelligent life, <laughs> you know? But I mean, it's like it's not implausible, right? And I, I do feel sorry, by the way, that we are not a YouTube show because as you were talking about neural networks, um, I was imagining some schematics that I've seen before. Um, and you were kind of like moving your head, I mean, I think you were imagining the same thing in your head. So neural networks are usually illustrated with certain schematics and it's like much easier. That's right. Uh, you know, a picture, a picture in that case is worth a thousand a year, your words. And so I apologize for that. Anyone who's interested, just, just Google neural networks or go to Wikipedia, you'll see it. And the image makes it really clear, but I wanted to bring up neural re- networks because, you know, I read stuff in the nineties, I think '90s, no two thousands, uh, by, uh, now Gary Marcus, who was a big AI skeptic. Uh, now he's a cognitive sci- scientist, psychologist, although he left academia a while ago. In any case, he was, he, you know, one of his books about cognitive science psychology that I read, actually, um, was really, really skeptical of neural networks. I think it was written in the late 90s or early 2000s. But the point is, you know, the hype cycles have come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. And I'm of an age where robots and artificial general intelligence, you know, was supposed to show up at any moment. And so, you know, you start to get cynical. Um, But, um, you know, there was Deep Blue, uh, Watson. um, I remember, actually, the Watson hype cycle. That was a – I was an adult then. Uh, It was very clear. The Singularity Institute uh, sponsored a um, kind of a a viewing of the Jeopardy! episode. So for context for people, uh, Watson won at Jeopardy!, right? That's right. Yeah, so that was a big deal. But yeah. um, obviously, Watson's nothing like GPT. Uh, didn't use the same technologies or the same under, like, you know, LLMs and Transformers. All those things weren't around then. Uh, so it's it was a totally different thing. What I remember, I think Watson or Deep Blue, which I think also is IBM, um, I think they were supposedly going to do protein folding and unfolding. Like, that was what they were ultimately their horse. And just just so the listeners out there understand, Protein folding and unfolding is super important because DNA turns into RNA, which turns into proteins. And proteins are, you know, you can create, you know, pharmaceuticals out of this. But a lot of pharmaceutical drug development is basically iterative. It's trial and error. That takes a lot of time. So you, if you can figure out how the DNA Maps onto a protein product that will shorten a lot of the trial and error, and that's why computation has become more, more important, more and more important. And I believe DeepMind, uh, the more recent iteration from Google, has you know gotten at this somewhat. So there are some real practical applications out there that uh, that AI is important. Going back to Minsky, um, I want to ask you, uh, how did uh, what what years did you get your PhD? Like where were you when when you were working under him?
0: Roughly 97 to 2002.
1: So how did he feel about the field then? Like, what was your sense?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, he spent almost all of his time talking about how he felt about the field. So um, at the time, um, you know, we think of machine learning as being this sort of, at least some people do, of this sort of more modern thing. But at the time, that's when neural networks, um, so I would say the 90s were basically where neural networks were, were really, not not neural networks, machine learning, uh, were starting to become the dominant part of AI. And what that really meant at the time was rather than doing these kind of reasoning or search-based things based on knowledge that I was talking about earlier, um, they they would not bother trying to give knowledge to the computer, but instead they would give it a ton of uh, training data and hope it would sort of infer knowledge. Um, And that was becoming dominant in the field. uh, And Marvin Minsky painted that. Um, and, um, that so that was his, one of his main themes was, uh, you know, pushing for reasoning and knowledge, uh, and planning. Um, and another one of his themes was, uh, diversity versus uniformity. And what that meant in that context was, uh, everybody else everybody else, so, you know, the general pattern is somebody invents a certain kind of algorithm or class of algorithms inside of, uh, artificial intelligence. And then they try to claim that that algorithm will be able to do everything. So, you know, right now we obviously are living in a world where a lot of people in AI are trying to, uh, push, uh, deep neural nets to be able to do everything. And that's what their belief is. And that's sort of the foundations of the, uh, of their, you know, it's the premise behind a lot of their work. Um, And sort of, and, and his thesis was, um, actually what you needed to do is not have one method that, that, that could do everything, but actually find ways of creating systems that created, uh, combinations of these methods. So his famous book, the society of mind meant that, that the mind, rather than being one specific monolithic algorithm was instead of a collection or community of algorithms that were working together, um, to, uh, be intelligent. Um so those were those were the two things I would say. He was he was sort of arguing for a kind of decentralization and he was also arguing for a kind of uh you know he was arguing against uh big data. Let's let's call it that.
1: Yeah, um so I mean yeah, big data, I mean machine learning is like you're training these machine learning algorithms and uh you know anyone who you know reads my stuff has seen plots generated with machine learning um where you know it's not put it the information is not put in there a priori so for example okay i want to like find population structure uh in this set of individuals and you know you just put in some parameters in there and then it like looks in there um, and creates these clusters and you know it does it by max you know maximizing the likelihood or something like that there's a function in there that it's maximizing but um you don't know what's going to come out uh, uh because it's based on what you put in you know, but that's
0: right. That's right. And, and, you know, those algorithms, those machine learning algorithms are extremely useful. I'm not trying to argue that they're not useful and neither was he. Um, I think in the context of actually trying to make computers that are intelligent as people, um, which was, you know, was his goal, um, you know, think, you know, observe, for example, chat GPT, super impressive, but it does take billions of words of data, training data to train it. Um, you know, I, I hundreds of billions, I don't know, have the exact number in my head, but it's, it's, it, but humans learn um, language with, you know, or a hundred thousand or million words uh, in their training data. Um, so it's several orders of magnitude, you know, uh, it's almost like, yeah, it's several orders of magnitude, more data than, than people have. Um, and, um, and so how, how, how is that, you know, what's, so there must be something else going on besides what deep neural nets are doing and how people are learning. And also the other thing to realize is, you know, this gets back to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, the Turing test the 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 w- when deep neural nets uh excuse me when llms and things like chat gpt start to sort of show their limitations when you try to have them reason or plan or actually solve problems i mean if you actually are trying to to plan a specific f- trip with a neural net w- with a excuse me with a chat gpt um for example um it's not that great actually at keeping track of where you're going and when and your st- connections and this or that um and a lot of your preferences and all that whereas um and so and and so in contexts like that um I, you have these other algorithms that are, are more useful at that kind of thing and um i think what you know marvin was uh, trying to sort of encourage people was to get you know better at, uh, using those kinds of algorithms and and people are very good at those kinds of algorithms so you will get kids um who are 5 or 10 years old who can outreason chat gpt in a lot of context um and so that's um uh Anyway, so that's, um, I forget how we got onto that, but that is. No, no, no. Talking about machine learning. You know, I want to say this is a yeah. very
1: fascinating point. Um, and I think, you know, um, what it reminds me of, i use an analogy uh, Fermat's last theorem. Um, obviously, you know, part of it was lost, and so they couldn't figure it out. It was short. We knew that it was short. So um, when it was solved by Andrew Wiles, it was very long. Uh, so Andrew Wiles got to the same endpoint. In an incredibly tortuous way, manner, using extremely complicated mathematical fields that were developed within the last couple of decades. Well, Fermat got to a quick. Now, it could be it could be Fermat was just wrong. (laughs) That's one hypothesis. I think I'm I'm not going to lie. I actually wonder if that's 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 the case. But it could be that he was right and he got to it in like very few steps somehow. Okay. And so to me, that illustrates, you know, you can get to the same endpoint. So, what LLMs, that large language model, and I, you know, I've done multiple podcasts on this. I don't want to be labeled what, it, what an LLM is. Uh, but, but basically, uh, you know, LLMs, like they've they brute forced their way into seeming human, into seeming clever. Right. We are not brute force. I mean, like our brains are light. Um, you know, they're packed well. They're sloppy in some ways, but they're incredible in other ways. And so, um, you know, we, we achieve a state of seeming human very efficiently. Uh, I mean, imagine, I mean, yeah, I know that we take, we, we got some electricity going through our system. We got to eat, but, um, we, we use a lot less energy, uh, than these, uh, these big, big dumb pieces of metal. I'm still going to say they're dumb because they're not controlling the world yet. And, uh, I hope they're, they're not like offended. Um, but in any case, machine learning, so, um, you know, I have a friend who works in agricultural genetics, and she's always saying, like, you know, it's just like it's like a buzzword, like regression is machine learning. You know, how would you define machine learning? I mean, you kind of went around the edge, but let's sure. uh, let's
0: let's drill down. Well, there's yeah, the more literal definition. The most literal definition is basically that, you know, computers, by interacting with the world, um, develop a capability they didn't have before they started interacting with the world. Um, so they started out not being able to do something, not knowing something. And then they observe, they act, they plan. Uh, and then basically after a while they can, they can, they can do it. Um, that's, that's the most general, um, and there are lots of ways to learn. You can learn with lots of big data. You could learn by, um, you know, uh, just uh, speculating in your head and trying to prove the errors. So I said, sim- si- our si- simulations, you know, or simulations. Yeah, no, exactly. Simulation is a great way of learning. Um. But I think colloquially uh, today what machine learning means, is definitely in the field what it means, it means using huge amounts of data to uh, train computers to be uh, smart. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that, yeah that, that's what machine learning Which, is. So
1: we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't have – so the theory – so um, you know, um, you know, I like to – example um, I like to use is a lot of phylogenetic programs today. They use MCMCs.